Jersey City, New Jersey, July 2nd, 1921. We're at the National Boxing Association's heavyweight title fight between the champion Jack Dempsey and the challenger Georges Carpentier taking place at Boyle's 30 Acres. We're sitting next to the Radio Corporation of America's new general manager, David Sarnoff. To his right is Major Andrew White of RCA's Wireless Age magazine. This venue was built specifically for the bout. There's 80,000 raucous people here with us. The arena is swaying with the cheers of the crowd as first Dempsey in round one and then Carpentier in round two have led the action. RCA has borrowed a General Electric transmitter destined for the Navy and installed it in a railroad shack in Hoboken. White is narrating the action audibly, speaking into a phone line leased from AT&T that's traveling two miles to that railroad shack that's been converted into a broadcasting station. RCA has obtained a one-day license broadcasting as WJY. There's a technician named Pierre Boucheron who is repeating White's words into a microphone. A 3,500-watt transmitter is feeding a signal into a long wire that Sarnoff's men have strung between a steel tower and the train station's clock tower. That wire is carrying the action to listeners in a 200-mile radius. Here in the fourth round, the bloody French fighter Carpentier looks almost puny next to the American heavyweight. The ring announcer stated Carpentier's weight at 175 pounds, while Dempsey has weighed in at 188 pounds. Dempsey is now on the constant attack, circling his foe, slipping straight right hands past Carpentier's guard. The Frenchman is leaning against the ropes. Not only has Dempsey weathered Carpentier's best shots, a second round punch from the Frenchman broke his own right thumb, crippling his best weapon. With less than a minute to go in the round, Dempsey has landed a shot that sent Carpentier to the canvas. He's lying there until the count of nine when he springs to his feet charging Dempsey. Dempsey is ready for the attack and boom! He's connected with a straight right hand to the Frenchman's jaw. Carpentier goes down. The referee counts 10 and the bout is over. The challenger, Carpentier, lasted only four rounds and so did the transmitter. It blew only moments after Dempsey's knockout, but the broadcast was a sensation. It reached over 300,000 listeners in Eastern theaters, ballrooms, and other halls. All who heard paid admission, with proceeds being donated to the French post-war relief effort. This was, in effect, the world's first closed-circuit sporting event. And David Sarnoff has proven that such a thing is technically possible. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 77. My name is James Scully. Today on Breaking Walls, we pick up our story on the history of American radio broadcasting as a few ramshackle stations become large national networks, giving rise to an entire generation of entertainment giants during the roaring 1920s. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, thank you and welcome to the show. You can find this show on iTunes and everywhere you get your podcasts. By the way, you can support this show and unlock juicy bonus content and other fun extras at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. If you're listening on your iPhone, give us a quick rating. It'll help the iTunes algorithm, and it'll help more people discover this show. And to keep easily abreast with the show, 
join our Wall Breakers Facebook group, or follow the show on Instagram and on Twitter at The Wall Breakers. I introduced uh, William Jennings Bryan from the pulpit of the Point Breeze Presbyterian Church. That the great cities are in favor of the gold standard. We reply that the great cities rest upon our broad and fertile prairies. Burn down your cities and leave our farms, and your cities will spring up again as if by magic. But destroy our farms, and the grass will grow in the streets of every city of the country. By 1920, 6.7 million cars were on America's mostly unpaved roads. Airplanes were beginning to be less of a novelty, and there were roughly 125 telephones for every 1,000 people. It was the age of social expansion. Prohibition did little to deter the sale and consumption of alcohol. Women were hiking up their skirts, bobbing their hair, and publicly partaking in previously forbidden delights. Jazz music blared from the windows of basement and backroom speakeasies in all of America's largest cities. The decade's heroes, like Babe Ruth, Charles Lindbergh, and F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald were seemingly larger than life. KDKA took to the air on November 2nd, 1920. They soon hired their first full-time announcer, Harold Arlen. I uh, recall particularly uh, Will Rogers he came into the Pittsburgh Post studio one evening and picked up a copy of the Pittsburgh Sun and talked for 15 minutes in a very humorous vein just from the headlines in the evening paper. Folks, all I know is just what little news I read every day in the paper. Everybody's talking about what's the matter with this country, what the country needs. What this country needs worse than anything else is a place to park your car. What our big cities need is another orange you need. In 1921, 32 stations were licensed and Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover designated a second channel for broadcasting, restricted to government crop and weather reports. That same year, RCA began selling transmitting tubes for amateur broadcasting purposes. As per the Radio Act of 1912, amateur stations still had to transmit at 200 meters or less. Corporate stations could broadcast at 360 meters. Many amateurs were recruited by corporations and other businesses turning professional. Westinghouse led all corporate licenses with three new stations, KYW Chicago, WBZ Springfield, and WJZ Newark, who hired their main announcer, Tommy Cowan, straight from Westinghouse's testing department. In 1970, Ben Gross, a longtime radio columnist for the New York Daily News and friend of Tommy Cowan, recalled what Tommy would say upon signing on. This is a radio telephone broadcasting station of the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company located in Newark, New Jersey. We are talking to you now, ladies and gentlemen, with the idea that some of you out there can pick up our remarks. And if you do, please let us know. This is announcer Cowan, Newark. In August of 1921, there were two new station licenses issued for the month. Five months later, in January of 1922, 20 new stations applied for licenses. In May of that year, 99 new stations applied, 
and for the entire year of 1922, 570 news stations took to the air. Newspapers, department stores, auto dealers, universities, religious institutions, even the Chicago stockyards and a laundry service in Los Angeles all signed on. Call letters east of the Rocky Mountains were assigned a W prefix and west were assigned a K. By May of 1922, the New York Times was printing schedules for six stations, KYW, Chicago, KDKA, Pittsburgh, WBZ, Springfield, WJZ, Newark, WGY, Schenectady, and WVP, the Army Signal Corp station on Bedloe's Island in New York. Today, Bedloe's Island is called Liberty Island and it's home to the Statue of Liberty. Soon, Bamberger's department store in Newark opened WOR, an acronym that stood for World of Radio, advertising their many sets for sale. Here, former chief engineer Jack Popoli recalls WOR's origin. Now, I started with WOR in February 1922, about the time when uh, Bamberger's received the license to broadcast, and this license was issued at that time by the Department of Commerce. We went to Washington in the morning, prepared an application for a wireless telephone license. We submitted it to the clerk. The clerk filled out a, a license, and we came back in the afternoon with a license. We bought an old DeForest transmitter, promptly put it on the air, and on February the 22nd, 1922, was the inauguration date of WOR. And we endeavored to make this February 22, 1922, because the numerals all came out 2 22 But interestingly, the schedule that we prepared at the time we had a half-hour broadcasting in the morning from 10 to 10.30. We had a half-hour broadcasting in the afternoon from 2 to 2.30. And then we were also on the air between 6 and 7 o'clock. KFH was for Kansas's finest hotel. KFQB was the Keep Folks Quoting Bible Station in Fort Worth, Texas. WGBS was for Gimbel's Department Store in Manhattan. WCAP was the Chesapeake and Potomac Telephone Company. WSUN was the Why Stay Up North station in Tampa, Florida. And WMSG was for the Madison Square Garden station in New York City. The public ate it up, investing $60 million in home receiving sets. By the end of 1922, more than 1.5 million sets had been sold in the US. Regular radio broadcasting at this time was barely two years old. By the end of 1922, San Francisco had 11 stations, New York had 15, and Los Angeles area had 22, like KHJ, which is still in existence today as the sixth oldest station in the United States. Originally, programming was considered an extension of the theater. In fact, the theme of radio as virtual theater would be one that continued throughout the golden age of radio. The big question on the minds of industry heads and policymakers was how radio would pay for itself. A range of financing ideas, from licensing fees on sets to a radio tax and advertising were discussed. Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover was dead set against radio as an advertising medium. It is inconceivable that this great medium of culture and enlightenment and education should ever be used for the hawking of merchandise. On August 28, 1922, the AT&T-owned station WEAF in New York was the first to breach the advertising levy. They instituted a policy of toll broadcasting. They would produce no programming, however, would sell time on the air for a toll or fee. That day at 5.15 p.m., 
WEAF aired a 10-minute message from a real estate developer who was opening a new housing complex in Queens, New York. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. Visit our new apartment homes in Hawthorne Court, Jackson Heights, where you may enjoy community life in a friendly environment. The spot cost $50. The ad was successful. The luxury apartments of Hawthorne Court in Jackson Heights, Queens are still with us. AT&T, sensing the programming boom coming, moved WEAF's headquarters to radio's first modern studio at 195 Broadway in Lower Manhattan. They also switched to a higher power transmitter and commissioned new staff programs and sound engineering that catapulted broadcasting forward. Our aim, said AT&T official William E. Harkness, is to develop broadcasting on a revenue-paying basis. WEAF broke new ground by creating the first variety show when it brought local vaudeville acts in to do music and comedy like famed ukulele player May Singy Breen. They asked us to come down one Saturday morning and play for Gimbal Brothers because Gimbal Brothers were having big sale of radios. Then they suddenly realized there was no program on the air before 12 o'clock. So WAF had to put a special show on and all the artists got $5 a piece from Gimbal's to go on with the show so they could demonstrate their radios in the store. I know that McNamee was on, Jones and Hare were on, uh, Goldie and Dusty. Goldie and Dusty had the gold dust uh, soap powder, and the Happiness Boys had the Happiness candy. But anybody who didn't have a commercial got $5 for going on that program. It didn't make any difference to us whether we got paid or not because we weren't used to it anyway. <laughs> that same month, in August of 1922, General Electric's WGY in Schenectady, New York, premiered the WGY Players Group that aired a weekly scripted drama. The troupe was credited with inventing the first sound effects, such as actors improvising the rhythm of horse hooves with their chest thumps or prison shackles with a rattled chain. Although AT&T and WEAF only collected $550 in toll revenue, these commercials caused a flurry of press asking the public if a public medium like radio should be used for commercial gain. Though one could argue that, in theory, a newspaper was also a public medium and they had no problem advertising on its pages. Eight months later, WEAF boasted a client roster of 25 advertisers. At WEAF, they used announcer names and some, such as Graham McNamee, became stars. By decade's end, radio studios became status symbols and were emulating movie palaces with expensive organs, grand pianos, and auditoriums that could accommodate entire orchestras. Many of the early announcers wore tuxedos. At this time, direct advertising was considered in poor taste and offensive to listeners, so advertisers had to figure a way around the problem. AT&T allowed soft-sell infomercials about Christmas folklore and related themes by Macy's and Gimbel's, about the latest fashion and beards by Gillette, and in January of 1923, actress Marion Davies gave a talk on how she made up for the movies for Mineralava, which got hundreds of listener requests for autographed photos of the star. On August 4th, 1923, The Happiness Boys, starring Billy Jones and Ernest Hare, took to the air on WEAF, sponsored by The Happiness Candy Company. It was the first program to have a sponsor in the name's title. A new form of product advertising was born. Famous acts followed, like the Ipana Toothpaste Troubadours, the Gold Dust Cleaning Powder Twins, the Lucky Strike Cigarette Orchestra, Tasty Bread Loafers, and the A&P Grocery Gypsies. WEAF's biggest hit was Roxy and His Gang, 
airing each Sunday evening from the Capitol Theater on Broadway just north of Times Square. The star was S.L. Roxy Rothafel, a Minnesota-born showman who was an ex-Marine and junior high school dropout. Roxy would later go on to become the president of the Radio Announcers of America and manage Radio City Music Hall, where he popularized the Rockettes. When the Everady Hour, sponsored by Everady Batteries, was first broadcast on December 4, 1923, they insisted WEAF link with WJAR in Providence, Rhode Island, and WRG in Buffalo, New York, for simultaneous broadcasts. This was the first of many early chain presentations by AT&T and its competitor RCA Westinghouse. In 1923, when President Calvin Coolidge delivered his first public address after Coolidge succeeded the deceased Warren G. Harding as president, six stations carried it. In 1924, 16 stations from Boston to Kansas City carried the Republican National Convention from Cleveland, and both AT&T and Westinghouse RCA chains carried the Democratic National Convention from Madison Square Garden Manhattan. Alabama is for for w. It was the first faint rumblings of network connections. Let us organize a separate and distinct company. This company to be controlled by the Radio Corporation of America but its board of directors and officers to include members of the General Electric Company and the Westinghouse Electric Company, and possibly also a few from the outside, prominent in national and civic affairs. Such company to acquire the existing broadcasting stations of the Westinghouse Company and the General Electric Company, as well as the three stations to be erected by the Radio Corporation of America, to operate such stations and build such additional broadcasting stations as may be determined upon in the future. At the second national radio conference in 1923, Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover sought to alleviate the ethereal congestion by assigning radio stations into three classes, A, low power, B, medium power, and C, high power stations. Class A stations would be limited to 500 watts, while Class B would use 500 to 1,000 watts for power. Under the plan, none of the high power stations operating on 360 meters would be forced to change to a new frequency, and no new stations would be assigned to 360 meters. Hoover hoped as Class A and B stations switch frequencies, it would clear up some of the congestion. It will come as little surprise that the high-powered stations belong to AT&T, General Electric, and Westinghouse, while the low-power stations belong to universities, churches, and other nonprofits. Although RCA Westinghouse, General Electric, and AT&T were technically competitors, their agreement from 1919 gave them a huge competitive advantage. Hoover's plan backfired. It gave the corporations too much control of the industry. Of the 600 stations on the air, only 35 used Western Electric transmitters. The others used RCAs. In addition, RCA vacuum tubes were required in most transmitters, including those made by Western Electric. To top it off, most radio receivers manufactured in the U.S. required RCA parts or tubes to operate. Stations not participating in the AT&T network 
who are unable to use AT&T lines for broadcasting, having to rely on the inferior Western Union and Postal Telegraph lines. Although, as part of AT&T's 1919 agreement with RCA, AT&T wouldn't become a major radio manufacturer, by 1923, they were already ignoring the four-year-old contract, claiming it was counterproductive to their business. Now, AT&T quietly divested its RCA shares, fanning rumors they were planning on manufacturing radio receivers. In 1924, AT&T ordered phone affiliates not to interconnect competitors of any AT&T station. It also claimed that any station using AT&T's wires that charged sponsors for airtime would also owe AT&T a fee. That year, in 1924, Americans spent more than $385 million on radio equipment. AT&T's actions prompted the government to step in with a Federal Trade Commission inquiry into patent use and control of reception and transmission rights. It found AT&T, along with RCA, to have monopolized the transmission and reception of broadcast equipment. AT&T, with exquisite ill timing, sued WHN, the station for the Lowe's State Theater in Manhattan, demanding royalties for sponsor fees WHN had obtained. The New York Times reported that if successful, AT&T would stop other independent stations from broadcasting. They also found that AT&T had accumulated a huge backlog of unfilled transmitter orders for stations competing with WEAF. A public outcry mounted. AT&T had no choice but to retreat. They settled with WHN, set a one-time transmitter fee, and pledged to sell any one transmitters as powerful as WEAF's. Soon, some 250 stations, regardless of transmitter origins, began paying AT&T fees. Dozens began selling time and AT&T offered a 13-station chain for interconnection at $150 to $500 per hour. This caused Westinghouse and RCA to step in. They invoked a charter provision written into their 1919 contract with AT&T that created binding arbitration for contract disputes. Behind closed doors, the arbitrators ruled against AT&T on almost every key point. RCA's cross-licensing contracts that had limited their broadcasting rights were considered illegal and non-binding. Because of this, AT&T was no longer allowed to use any of RCA's patents for radio manufacturing and broadcasting. General Electric's Vice President Owen Young stepped in to mediate a settlement and divorce from the contract. The settlement provided that AT&T would withdraw from broadcasting. RCA would purchase WEAF from AT&T for $1 million. RCA would pay more than $1 million annually to AT&T to rent their power lines for the next 10 years. And a new broadcasting network, yet unnamed, was to be formed and owned by an RCA majority. That network was to become the National Broadcasting Company. Mary, no! God, let what? go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If you're happy place, 
is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. On the evening of November 15, 1926, 1,000 elegantly dressed guests gathered in the grand ballroom of the old Waldorf Astoria Hotel on 34th Street in Manhattan for the first broadcast of the National Broadcasting Company. That summer, RCA had named Merlin Ellsworth, a former executive of the National Electric Light Association, as the first president, and in September, Ellsworth and RCA officially incorporated NBC. NBC's first major press release promised radio for 26 million homes with no monopoly of the air. At 8 p.m., NBC premiered with a four-hour $50,000 spectacular, which aired on 26 stations as far west as Kansas City. Stars from New York included Walter Damrush and his New York Symphony, from Chicago opera diva Mary Garden, and from Kansas comedian Will Rogers. At the debut, Marilyn Ellsworth spoke. Beginning tonight, you will receive a new trail in radio. In the future, those engaged in production will, through the power of radio broadcasting, with modern radio equipment, offer their talents, whether in song, drama, comedy, or orchestra. WEAF in New York was the network's flagship station. Soon, stations like Westinghouse's KDKA in Pittsburgh and KYW in Chicago needed more programming. So a second chain network with WJZ as the flagship premiered two months later in January of 1927. Originally, 20 stations were part of NBC's WEAF chain and six were part of NBC's WJZ chain. To help avoid confusion, the networks were given color distinctions, with WEAF's chain becoming NBC Red and WJZ's chain becoming NBC Blue. Both networks operated the same way for a price contracting to provide programming to affiliated stations which reserved designated times for the network. All of the early programming was live and much was created in New York. The networks obtained advertisers and reimbursed affiliates for their time and also provided unsponsored or network-sustained programming on mutual agreed-upon financial terms. In 1927, both networks also began weekly political debates and news programs. That spring, NBC covered Charles Lindbergh's nonstop flight from New York to Paris along with many international radio stations. At 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the weather is reported as poor. This is WJZ New York, George Hicks reporting. As Saturday dawned over the vast Atlantic, the Lindbergh plane is unreported since passing Newfoundland early last night. This is station 2RN Dublin calling. The American flyer Lindbergh passed over Dingle Bay on the Irish coast at a low altitude at 1.30 this afternoon. Ici Radio Paris. Un bateau pêcheur près de Cherbourg vient de nous informer que l'aéroplane de Lindbergh est arrivé à la côte de France à 3 heures de distance de Paris. This is Lowell Thomas in New York. He made it. 
Charles A. Lindbergh, Lucky Lindy as they call him, landed at Le Bourget Airport, Paris at 5.24 this afternoon, thus becoming the first person to fly New York to Paris nonstop. When Charles Lindbergh arrived back in the United States, NBC's Grand McNamee was there. National Broadcasting Company and Associated Radio Stations ask you to just listen to the band for a few moments because particularly this is the first time band music or music has been transmitted from the Atlantic And later that evening, Lindbergh gave a speech in which he joked about his experience. ...and the hope of being able to see Europe. And I wasn't in any hurry to get back. informed that while it wasn't in order to come back home, that there'd be a battleship waiting for me next week. By the summer of 1927, NBC planned a coming Pacific Coast regional network known as NBC Orange with seven stations that would be programmed from San Francisco. An artist bureau launched to book talent for NBC and others. A radio network advisory council was formed. And in October, NBC moved into its new headquarters, a 15-story building at 711 Fifth Avenue in New York, with four floors, including an auditorium for NBC, WEAF, and WJZ broadcasts. WEAF New York. By year's end, the company had made more headlines with a $620,000 variety series General Motors Family Party on NBC Red. They also announced a spectacular in honor of the 10th anniversary of the end of World War I called the Dodge Victory Hour, and it would air from 47 NBC Red and Blue Network affiliates. It cost more than $1,000 per minute and included stars like Will Rogers, Al Jolson, and Paul Whiteman. In 1928, AT&T completed a new coast-to-coast broadcast line to California, making NBC the first nationwide network. Like the American economy, NBC was booming. They were in control of the major national radio broadcasting. But they wouldn't be the only network conglomerate for long. There's a line in Bill Inge's play, The Dark at the Top of the Stairs, in which the bewildered hero says... <clears throat> Damned if I don't sometimes think it's easier to pioneer a country than to settle down in it. Now, most of us here, I believe, know something of what he means. Your citation of me is kind enough to say that I early recognize the need for personal involvement of top management in broadcasting's product of programming. But I don't think that's any personal credit to me. In the now long-ago days when I was a broadcast pioneer, there wasn't anything else to do. Our top management was also our bottom management. And there were few distinctions to be made between policy and operations. It was one ball of string and a pretty tangled ball at that. In 1926, with rumors of NBC's conception known within the radio industry, Arthur Judson, manager of the Philadelphia Symphony, visited David Sarnoff. Judson, wanted to start a talent agency to ensure NBC the highest quality performers and ensure those performers were adequately paid. Sarnoff was interested. Judson then organized the Judson Radio Program Corporation, but never heard back from Sarnoff. 
when he partnered with George A. Coates, they went to see Sarnoff, who told them he decided not to take the duo up on their offer. The team threatened to start their own broadcasting chain. Sarnoff laughed and informed them that RCA's contract with AT&T would prevent other chains from materializing. In January of 1927, Judson and Coates incorporated the United Independent Broadcasters and recruited former RCA employee Major Andrew White. A Philharmonic patron from Cincinnati named Betty Fleischman Holmes bankrolled them until AT&T demanded $100,000 for a security deposit. Simultaneously, rumors circulated that RCA intended to buy the phonograph manufacturer Victor. When Columbia Phonograph Company got wind of this, they agreed to finance the operation, but also gave themselves a 30-day opt-out. In August of 1927, from the offices of Manhattan's Paramount Building at 1501 Broadway, the Columbia Phonograph Broadcasting Company announced a 16-affiliate network. The stations included WOR Newark, WNAC Boston, WCAU Philadelphia, WCAO Baltimore, WMAQ Chicago, and KMOX St. Louis. On Sunday, September 18th, 1927, at 3 p.m., the Columbia Phonograph Broadcasting Company premiered from WOR Studios, calling itself the Voice of Columbia. It featured an orchestral fantasy, and the evening variety hour attracted a single sponsor. It was a flop. Columbia Phonograph delivered their 30-day withdrawal notice within two weeks. Soon, Judson discovered the withdrawal notice was also a ploy to default on its AT&T monthly bill, after which Columbia Phonograph would take over the company from Judson and reimburse AT&T, then owning the network for themselves. Columbia Phonograph's plan backfired when Judson borrowed the money necessary to pay the bill himself from Betty Fleischman Holmes. Beaten, Columbia Phonograph agreed to turn over all of the shares for $10,000, and 30 hours of broadcast time. Oddly enough, they let Judson keep the name. Unfortunately, it only staved off the inevitable. Someone was needed to step in, and that someone turned out to be the 26-year-old son of a Chicago-born Philadelphia-raised cigar manufacturer named William S. Paley. In 1927, I was a vice president in my family's business in Philadelphia. The company made cigars. During the summer of that year, my father and uncle went to Europe, and I was left to run the business. Among my responsibilities was those of supervising production and having a hand in our advertising. One day, a salesman for Philadelphia's only radio station, WCAU, came in to see me. He thought our company should sponsor a radio program once a week. I rather liked the idea, but when he proposed an hour-long musical with a 20-piece orchestra, a male vocalist, a female vocalist, a small chorus and an outstanding guest, I knew this was going to run into real money. Well, it did run into real money. For the time and the talent, the price would be $50 a week. <laughs> but I was young and I was rash, and so I signed up. <laughs> we were really getting into a long run with the show, four or five weeks, when my father and uncle came home from Europe. <laughs> Their first knowledge of the La Polina Hour came when my uncle, who was in charge of finances, 
came across a $50 item for the first broadcast and called me onto the carpet. He objected not only to the $50. He was fearful that radio advertising might damage the prestige of our high-caliber cigar. <laughs> I was forced to cancel the contract. But it so happened that some friends of my family had made an investment in a company called the United Independent Broadcasters. It was an investment they were not happy about. They wanted to get out. But the major thing that prevented them was the non-existence of a willing or able buyer. Finally, it was suggested to my father that the Congress Cigar Company ought to buy the company, on the grounds that they, at least, had something that could be advertised. But it was through this suggestion that the idea first occurred to me of taking an interest in broadcasting myself. When I asked for a 10-day option to buy some stock in my own right, the astounded owners were only too happy to accommodate me. After much soul-searching, I decided to take the plunge. My arrangement with my family was that I would do all the necessary work to uh, reorganize the United Independent Broadcasters and its attached Columbia Broadcasting System network. We all thought it over carefully and decided the appropriate length for my leave of absence. I was to be gone three months. <laughs> By the end of three months, it had become apparent this was not quite a long enough time in which to accomplish the task. Not only that, I had discovered that the company interested me not only as an investment, but as a career. When I finally became convinced of this, I burned my bridges behind me, resigned from the Congress Cigar Company, and took up as a full-time job the strange and mysterious work called broadcast. The deal was closed on September 25, 1928, three days before Paley's 27th birthday. He paid $417,000 for controlling interest. Within weeks, he'd moved to Manhattan full-time to focus solely on the network, now officially named the Columbia Broadcasting System. When he compared NBC and CBS's affiliation provisions, he drafted a revised CBS contract and invited station owners to New York to discuss it. The revisions enabled Paley to double CBS's programming to 20 hours per week. When WOR reneged and became an independent chain, Paley, in December of 1928, bought WABC. This predated the American Broadcasting Company. WABC continued to be the call sign of CBS's main affiliate in New York until 1946. The following year, in 1929, Paley, in need of a West Coast connection, convinced Don Lee, who owned KFRC San Francisco, KHJ Los Angeles, as well as KMJ Fresno, KWG Stockton, and KFBQ Sacramento to join the Columbia Broadcasting System. This gave CBS a coast-to-coast -coast connection less than a year after Paley acquired the company. That June, Paley traded half his ownership of CBS for Paramount shares, valued at $3.8 million, or over $55 million in 2018. Paley's intention was to provide the sound for Paramount's new talkie films. As part of the deal, if CBS earned at least $2 million in profits in 1930 and 31, the studio would buy back its shares at a premium in 1932. If CBS fell short, it could keep the studio's stock and Paramount would own half of the Columbia Broadcasting System. Paley was confident. He'd been riding a wave of success for over a year. Most evident to listeners was Paley's overhauling in programming. Arthur Judson was still a CBS shareholder. Paley eased him into heading a Columbia Artist Bureau and a Columbia Concerts Corporation, which soon handled half the U.S. touring artist booking. 
It also gave Paley a free hand in programming. It seemed nothing could stop the confident 28-year-old from success. I cannot too strongly urge every voter to go to the polls on election day and cast his ballot in the way that his judgment and his own conscience shall dictate. Whatever the common judgment of the whole of a great people may be, that judgment will be right. In 1927, Herbert Hoover helped guide the planning and passing of the Radio Act of 1927, the most sweeping radio act since the Act of 1912 after the sinking of the Titanic. It established a federal radio commission. The five-person committee was given the power to grant and deny licenses and to assign frequencies and power levels for each station. The commission was not given any official power of censorship, although programming could not include obscene, indecent, or profane language. In theory, anything else could be aired. In practice, the commission could also take into consideration their ability to take away a broadcaster's license, enabling them to control content to some degree. The commission also had little power over networks. In fact, the Radio Act of 1927 made only a vague mention of radio networks. Advertising was mentioned in the act only with slightly more authority than networking merely requiring advertisers to identify themselves. The act divided the country into five geographical zones. Each zone was represented by one of the five commissioners. In the spring of 1928, the commissioners made drastic reallocations and told 164 stations to justify their existence or be forced to stop broadcasting. Many low-powered independent stations were eliminated. Educational stations fared particularly poorly. They were usually required to share frequencies with commercial stations and operate during the daytime, which was considered worthless for adult education because most people were at work. WNYC, the municipal station of New York City, which had signed on in June of 1924, was assigned a part-time low-power channel. It appealed and lost. Even though the station was government-owned, the Federal Radio Commission said that the city ownership did not give the station any special, specific standing concerning the public interest of convenience and necessity. Herbert Hoover had stepped back from the proceedings. His tenure as Secretary of Commerce was coming to an end in 1928. Hoover had built up the reputation as one of the men chiefly responsible for turning radio into the booming industry it was becoming. He believed in the efficiency movement, which held that every institution, public and private, was riddled with unsuspected inefficiencies, fixable by experts who could identify the problems and solve them. Hoover also believed in the importance of volunteerism and the role of individual people in the U.S., both socially and economically. Hoover's popularity was such that he accepted the Republican nomination for President of the United States in 1928, and that election day, November 6, 1928, he soundly defeated Democratic nominee, New York Governor Al Smith, by over 6 million votes, even winning Smith's home state of New York and several southern states that had not voted for a Republican since the end of Reconstruction. On March 4, 1929, on his inauguration day, 
Herbert Hoover said of the United States, Ours is a land rich in resources, stimulating in its glorious beauty, filled with millions of happy homes, blessed with comfort and opportunity. In no nation are the institutions of progress more advanced, are the fruits of accomplishment more secure. In no nation is the government more worthy of respect. No country is more loved by its people. I have an abiding faith in our capacity, integrity, and high purpose. I have no fears for the future of our country. It is bright with hope. The official slogan was, Four More Years of Prosperity. On September 20th, the London Stock Exchange crashed when top British investor Clarence Haytree and many of his associates were jailed for fraud and forgery. The London crash greatly weakened the optimism of American investment in markets overseas. The markets were becoming severely unstable. Periods of selling at high volumes were interspersed with brief periods of rising prices and recovery. On October 24th, called Black Thursday, the market lost 11% of its value at the opening bell on very heavy trading. The huge volume meant that the report of prices on the ticker tape in brokerage offices around the nation were hours late, so investors had no idea what most stocks were actually trading for at that moment, increasing panic. Several leading Wall Street bankers met to find a solution to the panic and chaos on the trading floor, including the heads of Morgan Bank, Chase National Bank, and the National City Bank of New York. They had Exchange Vice President Richard Whitney purchase a large block of shares in the U.S. Steel at a price well above the current market. As traders watched, Whitney then placed similar bids on other blue-chip stocks. It succeeded in halting the slide, and the market rallied on Friday and Saturday. However, on October 28th, more investors facing margin calls decided to get out of the market and the slide continued with a record loss in the Dow for the day of 38.33 points, or 13%. The next day, Black Tuesday, October 29, 1929, about 16 million shares traded as the panic selling reached its peak. The Dow lost an additional 30 points, or 12%. The volume of stocks traded on October 29, 1929, was a record that was not broken for nearly 40 years. Seemingly overnight, the bottom had fallen out of the American economy. Are you new to old time radio, a hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not so classic story from the old time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great. 
even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. Now at this time, we were broadcasting from what is now the Copacabana. It has then become the Villa Valley. We'd been thrown out of the High Oak Club when I was attending 60th. And... About this time, they decided for the man who brings over the gadget that sets up for the sustaining broadcast, you must pay $25 to each night he comes over. And the owner of the 1060 place said, pay, they should pay us to have you. I said, Mr. Bellack, they insist on you paying. Otherwise, I've got to have this lifeline. I'm dead. And he said, I won't pay it. So Peter Doyle said, Rudy, I think NBC will put a wire on your Villa Valley 1060 club for nothing, which, of course, they were happy to do. But I have to sign with NBC. So I signed with NBC, and that was the beginning of eventually the Fleischmann Hour, and pictures and all the other things that follow. October 24, 1929, the same day that the U.S. stock market lost 11% of its value at the opening bell, the Fleischmann Yeast Hour premiered on NBC at 8 p.m. It had been packaged by the ad agency J. Walter Thompson, with the agency staff as the directors and producers. It starred the man who would go on to become the country's first iconic radio pop star, Rudy Valley. The grandson of immigrants, he grew up in Vermont, and in 1917, while only 15 years old, Valley lied about his age so he could enlist in the Navy for World War I. After 41 days of active service, he was found out and discharged. After playing drums in his high school band, Valley played clarinet and saxophone in various bands around New England as a teenager. From 1924 through 25, he played with the Savoy Havana Band at the Savoy Hotel in London where his fellow band members discouraged his attempts to become a vocalist. As luck would have it, Valley was thrust into a vocal role one evening and never looked back. After graduating from Yale University, though he came from no overwhelming wealth or connections, he formed his own band, the Connecticut Yankees, and introduced the U.S. to a new style of singing, crooning. Considered the Sinatra of the 1920s, Valley was uniquely boyish in appearance while still managing to be elegant and rugged. A taskmaster of a band leader whose fistfights became front page news. Radio Land reported in 1934 that Valley had no patience for stupidity or the slightest deviation from what he considered the truth. He hated trumped up press, disliking even photographs that seemed obviously too posed. He once knocked out a reporter who wrote too explicitly about his ugly divorce from his second wife, Faye Webb. Valley was the most generous of friends, but once he felt his trust was violated, the person in question became the most bitter of enemies. He drove his band intensely, but always made sure they flew first class. He quibbled over pennies, but secretly supported a disabled musician he knew with years of expensive tuberculosis treatment. Valley saw the world in black and white, 
but was willing to apologize when it proved to his own satisfaction he'd been wrong. He later said, When I do something stupid or wrong, I ask the injured person's pardon, and I don't mind at all eating humble pie. He was the perfect symbol of an age in America that was blessed with the newest technological advances and an unemployment rate of 25%. Now, in those days, you didn't clear any songs. Nothing was cleared. No censorship. And this is where we did the broadcast. I did, I picked out a bunch of songs that went for half an hour. And the next day, I came into the club, and there were 12 letters on the desk of the captain's desk, and they were all addressed to me. And these letters all said, who are you? You are different, different, different. And the simple explanation was that in those days, you heard Lopez from the Pennsylvania saying, this is Lopez speaking, then Bernie saying, Yowser, from the Roosevelt Hotel, all playing the same cut-and-dried stock arrangements of all the show tunes, or the popular tunes of the day, but the simple stock arrangements. Nobody had a special arrangement. We couldn't play the arrangement because we had no brass. So we had no choice but to just play choruses. And I vowed when I used to play dances at Yale, we played... Uh, hours at a stretch, and invariably we'd stay in the same key, because the leader didn't know. We were all boys put together for that evening, and we didn't know each other the night before. Many times we were just uh, put together for the evening, and nobody knew how to go from one chorus to another. Nobody knew where to make the chord change to go from F to G. <laughs> and we'd sit there, I fell asleep half the time, because playing in one key for an hour and a half is like being in a room with everything in one color. <laughs> I vowed if I ever had an orchestra, we would never play two choruses in the same key. Now, we're only going to play choruses, because that's all we can do. So every time we went from F to G to A flat to B flat to C, always mounting up for color, because keys have color. And it's very simple to understand how the jaded New York listener at that time, or New Jersey, Pennsylvania, dialing in this station had tremendous coverage. They were accustomed to this other stuff, always the same type of tune, the same way. But here's a fellow who says his name is Rudy Valley. They immediately picture George Raft. Patent leather hair, slow eyes, has to be. <laughs> but he talks through his nose like Coolidge, philosophizes in the manner of Billy Phelps, and he plays tunes that I brought back from London, like Georgie Porgy, she was the only girl. The Fleischman Hour was pure variety, the first show on the air that didn't have a comedian as MC. Valley sung, introduced guests, conducted interviews, and never minded making his large ego the butt of jokes. Are you sure this is Rudy Valley's office? Oh, it must be. There's a picture of Rudy Valley looking at a picture of Rudy Valley. By 1930-31, his second season on the air and the first in which solid ratings numbers were available, his show had a rating share of the almost unheard of 36.5. As big as Valley's show was, he was equally responsible for finding the next great wave of radio talent. Through his show, U.S. radio audiences discovered Francis Langford, Beatrice Lilly, Milton Berle, Phil Baker, Joe Penny, the Aldrich family, and Edgar Bergen, among numerous others. He was simply the biggest radio star of the 1930s. At that time, you boys probably don't remember this. NBC had what they called the Artist Service Bureau, which was managing personalities for radio. They had Lopez, and they asked me to sign not only an NBC contract to only broadcast with NBC, but also to be managed by the Artist Service Bureau, which they managed for about a year. And then the government stepped in, as they did with Angel Music Corporation of America and some of the other corporations, and said, look, you may not handle talent and present it too. You can either do one or the other. And that was the situation there, so NBC no longer managed me after about 1931. And the man named George Engel, E-N-G-E-L, was in charge of the NBC Artist Service Bureau. In 1932, I went to the coast to see my wife's fair where I was doing George White Scandal, Pennsylvania Grill, playing dances in the evening after the show, and doing my Fleischmann Hour from New York, and three sustaining broadcasts from the uh, Pennsylvania Grill. 
And I came out with my, my wife to stay with them in the coast three or four months, and they're getting a little unhappy and jittery, so I went out to see her for two weeks, and somebody will pinch it for me in the broadcast and so on. And I came back. I bought a home in the coast for $80,000. Came back to the coast. I said to George Engel, this man was in charge of the artist service he wrote NBC, I said, do you ever think that broadcasting will be a, anything at all on the coast because I've just bought a home there? He says, Rudy, there will never be any broadcasting from California. <laughs> Madison Avenue wants to control of it right in New York. There'll never be any big broadcasting from California, period. <laughs> City had much of early radio's most famous programming, Chicago quickly became number two. Chicago was, after all, the nation's second most populous city, a communications and transportation crossroads with an advertising and publishing center. And it also had the U.S. Heartland's version of Broadway and Carnegie Hall. The Chicago radio movement was led by two newspaper radio stations, the Chicago Daily News' WMAQ and the Chicago Tribune's WGN. WMAQ had achieved national status under founding manager Judith Waller. She persuaded Cubs owner William Wrigley Jr. to allow radio broadcasts of Cubs games, which resulted in huge attendance increases. She negotiated the signings of Freeman Gosden and Charles Correll, who would go on to star in the tremendously popular Amos and Andy. She conceived a forerunner to CBS's American School of the Air, and aired lectures that evolved into NBC's University of Chicago Roundtable. She once even saved the Chicago Symphony. When the Daily News' board announced the orchestra's demise during a 1927 wage dispute, Ms. Waller raised $100,000 in an on-air appeal that helped meet union head James C. Petrillo's terms. As NBC regional vice president, she helped conceive education, health, and other public service programs on the network and served as a liaison with organizations ranging from the American Medical Association and the National Association of Broadcasters. In 1930, with Manhattan Studios crammed, NBC moved 30 New York productions to Chicago. The next year, NBC president Merlin Aylesworth penned an article for Radio Digest entitled, Chicago as Radio Capital. Aylesworth estimated that 200 network shows originated from Chicago each week. For much of the early and mid-1930s, more programming originated from Chicago than anywhere else. Both CBS and NBC scrambled for studios and affiliates. NBC bought WMAQ outright to use for their red network, and NBC's blue outlets became WENR and WLS. By 1933, Columbia Broadcasting had purchased WBBM, and in 1935, WGN opened a four-story annex to the Gothic Tribune Tower. Another show that rose to fame in Chicago was Easy Aces, starring Goodman Ace and his wife Jane. Easy Aces premiered on WGN in 1931. Ace played a perpetually pained ad executive whose wordplay with Jane, the accomplished malapropist, made it an intelligent listener's network favorite. In the 1970s, Goodman Ace spoke with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran. Money that I'd never heard of before to help him get out of debt. It was a 13 week contract. 
Did you actually use uh, card games uh, when you first started? Uh, yeah, bridge? we started playing bridge originally, and all our action plots were around bridge. You know, because when we first started, bridge was just coming into vogue. Culbertson, you know, Jane kept saying the cumbersome system. <laughs> Ella cumbersome, she kept calling him. What is it that makes a malaprop funny? I think it's delivery a lot. And, I, you, can, wonder, and you can't punch a malaprop. It's got to be thrown away as if it's just something that just came to you accidentally, you know. It's like we have room service that we live, where we live in the apartment hotel. And uh, she said if she had to, she could get the meals, you know. She said, I didn't take domestics, and she stopped. Because in the script, we said, I didn't take domestic silence for nothing, you know. <laughs> she, we did it. she said, I can strangle eggs. I can, uh, you know, all the, all the mouths were mixed in together then. I can make instant coffee in five, ten minutes, you know. <laughs> and what was your famous tagline? Would you deliver that? I would always said, isn't that awful, you know. Uh, something, or I would, if she said the one about the Old Testament, I was, and I said, holy Moses. You know, just throw it away, you know. Shows that originated in Chicago included youth serials, evening dramas, barn dances, sports, local shows, and soap operas. But programming was not without difficulties. Because all network shows were done live, Chicago's cast did two performances per broadcast, one for Eastern and Central Time, and another two hours later for Pacific Time. It made for an unstable production schedule long term. Years later... Radio character actor Hans Conried spoke about the differences in programming between New York, Chicago, and radio's next big location. The New York actors, the shows that came out of New York in the golden days of radio, were primarily of a documentary sense, and very often a more literate sense, and very often a more substantial sense. Chicago was primarily a soap opera production center, because the slaughterhouses in those days were in Chicago, where the soap was being manufactured of animal fats. That's interesting. That's exactly the reason for it. And the sponsors and the sponsors' wives who decided upon the artistic merits of any artist were in close proximity to the production. I primarily was a California actor, euphemistically and glamorously called Hollywood. (laughs) And Hollywood then, you see, uh, when I began in 35, just at that point, San Francisco was the big town on the coast. And uh, up to that point, uh, motion picture artists, motion picture performers were forbidden to appear on radio for fear they would lose their glamour. And since tickets cost 35 cents apiece to go to the motion pictures, there was a real problem until someone's nephew, I suppose, in one studio decided, let our actor, our movie star, step into your living room. And the phrase was born, and suddenly there became a vogue for motion picture actors. Now, the movie star was named and starred. He was the great glamorous attraction. And that's how Hollywood expanded into the glamour show. But those surrounding him were the workaday able actors who played part after part after part. I'm gonna buy a paper doll that Before the NBC Orange and CBS Don Lee Network coast-to-coast connections, the West Coast was its own world. But By 1927, San Francisco was beginning to originate its own programming. The most famous was the Blue Monday Jamboree. A large reason for the growth of West Coast programming was the show's music director, Meredith Wilson. He came to San Francisco to be the music director for station KFRC in 1932. The success of the Blue Monday Jamboree led the show to be moved to Thursdays in 1933 and out of San Francisco to Los Angeles in 1936. 
As Hans Conried mentioned, in the early 1930s, San Francisco was the main programming hub on the West Coast. But Hollywood drama and radio drama became a likely duo. Sylvester L. Pat Weaver, who would go on to become NBC TV's president, recalled that everyone who worked there really loved San Francisco. It was a wonderful town, but Hollywood was still the mecca and they were kind of stealing talent. At broadcasting's birth, Los Angeles, in Variety's 1931 words, had been considered comparatively a hick town. Four stations, KFI, KHJ, KNX, and KFWB provided most of the Los Angeles programming. The shift began in 1934 after columnist Luella Parsons began hosting the radio program Hollywood Hotel that featured stars in excerpts from their films. The next year, Congress mandated an FCC inquiry into AT&T phone charges that resulted in huge rate cuts, saving West Coast affiliates more than $12.5 million annually. That, coupled with the growth in overnight coast-to-coast -coast airliner service, created a westward expansion. In 1935, NBC opened a $2 million complex, followed by its and CBS's expanding into leased theaters and sound stages. NBC's inaugural West Coast broadcast boasted stars like Al Jolson, Bing Crosby, Rudy Valley, Jack Benny, Jimmy Durante, Bojangles Robinson, and Ruth Edding. In 1936, CBS paid $1.25 million for a Los Angeles KNX station. CBS expanded into their Columbia Square complex, and NBC expanded into a Hollywood radio city. Both announced wholesale shifts, moving most San Francisco programming to Los Angeles. In 1937, Hollywood surpassed Chicago as radio's number two network origination point. That year, 30 NBC shows and 20 CBS shows originated from Los Angeles. NBC launched the Hollywood Playhouse, and Jack Benny, Burns and Allen, Amos and Andy, Rudy Valley, Lanny Ross, and the Kraft Music Hall all originated here. While CBS boasted Eddie Cantor, Al Jolson, as well as the Lux Radio Theater, the Hollywood Hotel, and Camel Caravan. Radio actors' pay and assignments escalated, and when huge film stars Gene Herschel and Dick Powell both dropped studio ties, the Los Angeles balance of power swung in the direction of radio, with radio lending talent to films and using whatever talent they wanted from studios. The combination of the two overlapping industries, radio and film, made Hollywood the dominant force in American entertainment culture, and CBS and NBC were at the head of it. Ladies and gentlemen, again we greet you from the studios in Radio City. Texaco service stations and dealers from coast to coast present the Fire Chief Quartet. Don Voorhees and the Fire Chief Band. Graham McNamee. And Ed Wynn, the Fire Chief. Meanwhile, back in New York, comedian Ed Wynn, radio's fire chief, concerned about his future and the power of the established networks, had over programming policies of the local affiliate stations, attempted to start a third network called the Amalgamated Broadcasting System. Fifteen affiliate stations located in the Northeast were recruited with plans to add additional geographical groups of stations over time. The new network debuted with a four-hour gala on September 25, 1933, broadcast from its newly built studios at 501 Madison Avenue in New York City. system is on the air for the first time tonight. In true American spirit, with you and Mickey Alpert, we go marching along together. 
There were issues right from the beginning. The company struggled to find sponsors and larger affiliates with powerful transmitters. The amalgamated broadcasting system collapsed in just five weeks. Ed Wynn felt ashamed and personally responsible for the fiasco. Later, when he was asked if he would make another attempt at organizing a radio network, his firm reply was, never again. My business is to make people laugh, not make myself feel like crying. Other third network attempts, like the World Broadcasting System and William Randolph Hearst's Texas-based Hearst Radio Inc., both failed. But WOR in New York had withdrawn as a CBS affiliate. It began program swapping with Cincinnati's WLW, Detroit's WXYZ, and Chicago's WGN. The stations agreed to share exclusive shows while maintaining independence from an overhead corporate conglomerate like NBC or CBS, and WXYZ had the one show that was incredibly popular which neither of the larger networks had access to. Speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high silver, the Lone Ranger. On September 29, 1934, this cooperative incorporated as a third network, known as the Mutual Broadcasting System, with WOR as the flagship. The cooperative network quickly became a radio dial fixture and offered listeners low-budget complimentary program like the Lone Ranger, Lum and Abner, and the Mutual Forum Hour. By 1936, the network obtained coast-to-coast status when the Don Lee chain dropped CBS and Mutual picked it up. That year, the network received positive press for their RNC and DNC national convention coverage, and by year's end, their affiliate count was up to 38. The following year, in 1937, the network received a citation from Radio Stars for their news coverage, and on September 26th of that year, this show premiered. The Shadow, a man of mystery who strikes terror in the very souls of sharpsters, lawbreakers, and criminals. Although a version of The Shadow debuted on CBS in 1932, until 1937, The Shadow's character was simply a story narrator with no involvement in any of the episode plot lines. This version of The Shadow opened a new era of pulp magazine superheroes. He was Lamont Cranston, a wealthy young man about town who, after spending years in the Orient, developed the power to cloud men's minds to his sight and outwit evildoers at every turn. It starred a 22-year-old Broadway upstart named Orson Welles, along with his troupe of Mercury Theater performers, which included the female lead, Agnes Moorhead. The show was an instant hit and would remain on the network until the 1950s. In 1939, the Mutual Broadcasting System won exclusive rights to broadcast the World Series. It was now firmly entrenched as a third major network, 
separate from David Sarnoff's NBC and William S. Paley's CBS. Like wireless telegraphy before it, radio had proven itself to be uniquely a democratic medium capable of delivering news, entertainment, music, and sports to an entire nation of eager Americans. As the Great Depression's darkest days waned, the competition between these three networks drove programming capabilities to new heights and drove listenership to previously unheard of numbers. It seemed that both radios and America's darkest days were finally behind it and sunny skies were ahead. But unfortunately, war had once again come to Europe. assigned me as understudy to both uh, Ted Husing and then Bob Trout so that I was doing special events and sports as well as uh, station breaks and anything else that staff announcers were supposed to do. Being with the Yankees was really a highlight because it was part of their great dynasty. And hope that the Dodgers take the field. Jackie Robinson slams a triple to left center. Next time on Breaking Walls, in honor of Major League Baseball's opening day, our national pastime permeates barbershops, saloons, living rooms, and even a church or two, thanks to radio. We'll tell and hear baseball stories from some of the most famous radio broadcasters and baseball players in American history. The reading material for today's episode was The Rise of Radio from Marconi's for the Golden Age by Alfred Balk. Thank you, Mr. Balk. Could not have done this episode without your help. Inventing American Broadcasting, 1899 to 1922 by Miss Susan J. Douglas. The Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning. The Pictorial History of Radio's First 75 Years by B. Eric Rhodes. Hello, Everybody, The Dawn of American Radio by Anthony Rudell. And The Network by Scott Woolley. Featured on today's show were interviews conducted by Dick Bertel, the late Ed Corcoran, and numerous others for Westinghouse, CBS, and NBC. I'd like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gaston, three old-time radio enthusiasts who host their own program through the Yesterday USA Radio Network, which you can visit at yesterdayusa.com. They and I belong to the Old Time Radio Researchers Group, whose comprehensive library of old-time radio programs can be found at otrrlibrary.org. They also have a Facebook group, which you can find by searching for the Old Time Radio Researchers on Facebook. I'd also like to thank the late Les Tremaine, who did voice a David Sarnoff clip in this episode, and the late Jack Brown for their wonderful 1986 documentary series, Please Stand By, A History of Radio. Mr. Tremaine was a legendary radio performer during the Golden Age. If you're in New York City, check out the Fireside Mystery Theater. They produce new time audio dramas live at the Slipper Room at 167 Orchard Street on the Lower East Side each month. 
For more information on their next show, go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com or check out the Facebook page. And if you're not in New York City, fear not. Unless you're going to be scared of the Fireside Mystery Theater, that is. You can subscribe to their podcast, which are live recordings of the audio dramas enacted each month at the Slipper Room. It's on iTunes, Stitcher, and Audio Boom. And like I've mentioned before, I discovered them on iTunes before I ever saw them live, and nothing is lost in translation. You can find Breaking Walls everywhere that you get your podcasts, or go to thewallbreakers.com. If you've tried to find it anywhere and couldn't find it there, shoot me an email at james at thewallbreakers.com, and I'll make sure that show goes up in that location. And if you'd like to shoot me an email for any reason at all, that same email address applies. It's public. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. I'll be updating with new content for patrons at least once per week going forward. That's the goal. The Wallbreakers, we're on all social media outlets at The Wallbreakers. The next episode of this series on the history of American radio drama, Breaking Walls episode number 78, will be available on Easter Sunday, April 1st, and in honor of Major League Baseball's opening day and Easter Sunday, we'll hear some great baseball stories from some of the most famous voices in radio and baseball history. Until that time, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode number 77. I hope you enjoyed the ride, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. 